Welcome back to season nine of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. Listen now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Today is our guest. We have my friend, I think we can say that, Jared and Rao. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, would you... Thank you, friend. Good to be with you. Yes. Um, would you... Just, who are you? Like, how do you... Like, tell us who you are. Well, I'm a father of four wonderful children that are adults uh, and have brought into the world uh, seven grandchildren that we enjoy a lot. And they're all nearby. I live in Kansas City. Well, I live in Shawnee, Kansas, actually, but Kansas City-ish, and they are all in the neighborhood, and so it's wonderful to be in this season of life to have them all around. Most of us all are around the dinner table every Sunday afternoon together. I think that's like seventeen of us, or something like that. Now, so I I need to sneak in for for dinner one day. Like, oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, we often that includes so it's seventeen of us, but the number around the table is often, you know, twenty something. Because yeah, we welcome lots of different folk to share that with us. I've lived here for thirty-two years. Um, my life has been as a pastor uh, in the Church of the Nazarene. I grew up actually in Oregon and went to school at Northwest Nazarene College then, uh, and then came to Kansas City for seminary. Uh, and thought I would just go back to Oregon and never made it home. <laughs> so I, I can relate to that. I'm still trying to get home. <laughs> we lived in Chicago for a season, about eight years, and then back to Kansas City in 1991 and have been here ever since. And uh, now I, I served for a season, 12 years, as the district superintendent or kind of the ecclesial overseer uh, for the Church of the Nazarene in what's called the Kansas City District. Um, and in the last five and a half years, I've been serving at Nazarene Theological Seminary as the president and the professor of pastoral ministry. All right. Well, that's a, a lot, but we first connected with each other in a class before I was Nazarene at the seminary where uh, one of uh, another pastor on the Kansas City District was there, the, uh, the professor, and I can't remember the official name of the class, and I just called it How to Become a Nazarene Pastor class, and I remember because I was a bit shyer than I am right now, waiting till everybody was gone to ask you a question, and my question was... I remember that, actually. Yeah. Um, in the Church of the Nazarene, if I were to become a member and work through the process of becoming ordained, would that be a, a challenge for me? Uh, and you were honest in the end and said yes, um, because you remember that maybe is there like context or what did you think about that question? Or can you imagine if I were to ask you that question today? Yeah, I don't know. I think I just sensed right immediately that this is a person that is going to be, if, if I don't just tell what's the truth, I just imagine this is a person whose life experience has equipped them to see through baloney in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to tell the truth. Yeah. And at that time, I, I made the decision because of where I was to say, well, I feel called to ministry. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, discern and beyond the journey um, and you were the DS at that time I'm wondering about the process that folks go through in terms of the the board of ministry interviews and those sorts of questions uh, has there been and I know you don't serve in this role now but any questions around that or considerations around folks who are discerning uh, becoming ordained and having a disability. I don't recall it being a subject of explicit conversation very much, um, unless and until 
someone came through the process that, you know, brought the question right up in front. And that could look, you know, many different ways, I suppose. But um, I don't, I think it's fair to say that at least when I was in charge of that process, the truth is, I don't think we did anything very proactively in that regard. We more reacted probably you know, hopefully didn't just react, responded, but, you know, it wasn't proactive education in that sense. It was more, oh my, we better learn something here, you know. And I don't, I don't recall any explicit question in that process that was like, hey, you have a disability, so how are you going to do X, Y, Z? Um, which... In one way, I appreciate it because it's like you're going to see me as a whole person asking you the theological questions that you would have asked anybody else. And in the other, it could also feel like, hey, we all have this elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. Um, I also I do want to kind of rewind back um, because the question I usually ask before we get to this one is, do you or in what way do you identify within the disability community? I know when I asked, probably that was a question. So, Well, when you asked me to participate in this, you you named something that you know about me uh-huh. <laughs> that most people don't know about me. Mm-hmm. And so I told you, I feel a little bit, I feel very humbled to even be in the conversation. Um. Uh, so what I deal with is uh, a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And so I've been walking that journey for, well, my diagnosis is 2008. So however many years that is. I'm a pastor. I don't do math. <laughs> and even at the time of my diagnosis, this the uh, physician said, you, you've probably been dealing with this 10 years already, but, you know, just based on MRI and all that. Um, so that's my reality. And, you know, I attend to that reality on a daily basis and less, well, in some other ways on, you know, certainly on a, uh, episodic basis with my physicians and all that. But, but here's the truth of it. I'm, I have been blessed, uh, to be fairly asymptomatic in terms of what anybody else would notice. Now I'm aware every single day that I that I that I have this, uh, but even my own family uh, often forgets in a way. You know, I mean they don't forget, but there's nothing so evident in my experience, unlike the experience of many others who have the very same disease. Uh, there's nothing in my experience so far that makes it evident to others that you know this is something I deal with. So how how am I supposed to receive that? You know, is I mean, thanks be to God, it's a blessing in that way. You know, um, and yet, uh, it also keeps me from perhaps having to uh, be right up front with others about the reality of my life, if if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. So in the disability community, we would say that there are both folks with very visible disabilities, which is, if you see me, you'll know right right apart that I have a disability. And then those with invisible disabilities, right? Those of us who are able to pass unless, like something you named, there's like an episodic situation or something that makes it very evident that you have a disability. I'm wondering, like, but you named it as, like, maybe uh, a sense of blessing, but is there a sense in which, uh, like, a feeling of coming out in a way that, like, I don't have to do that because you you can just look and see. And then I see that, Josiah, but if you could respond to that. Uh, y- yes, I, I think, and I've received... Uh, the advice along the way early on, not so much anymore, 
But I got some advice to of people that said, well, you probably shouldn't tell anybody this. You know, you should probably just keep it quiet because um, people will judge you in certain ways. There'll be perhaps certain opportunities that will be withheld from you if people know this or, you know, whatever. And uh, I made a decision in in consultation with my with my wife as we discuss this, just to say, I, I'm, I'm just not willing to live that way. That's just too much to keep track of. (laughs) If, and I don't go, and I also, you know, don't necessarily lead with that in conversation or whatever, but if I'm asked or if it comes up, I'm just very open with, you know, my experience in that regard. Um, yeah. So, it's an interesting kind of tension that's there sometimes, you know. I was going to ask about the, you kind of touched on it with the recommendation you received from others about not making it central, perhaps, in your narrative or who you are, you know, how you're identified. So I'm just, I wanted to tease that out a little bit further since I'm trying to be the token ableist. Is there just that tendency to just want to not have it, to not name it, to not... Uh, acknowledge that it's there is that something that's that's present in in many of these little you know conversations that could or could not take place uh in your day-to-day life i think that cuts two ways maybe and one way is internally and there's a sense in which you know if you don't name it it doesn't exist kind of absolutely for a way to deal with it you know yeah ignorance is bliss i should try that no it doesn't work right um, and then the, the, the and then it, the way it you know then it cuts the other way, especially maybe in terms of those who are closest to you, because if it's named, then all of a sudden it's something we're having to deal with together. We're having to navigate it together, and the people who love me the most, you know, are having to um, in, in whatever ways just attend to that reality in my life. Um, and not that I have any particular even expectation for them in that way, but I just I think I know I can see and Starla I have certain certain Starla is my wife's name. I've certainly talked about this. Um, that she'll often say, "Wow, I you just you know sometimes I forget that you deal with this in ways that I don't always know about, you know, that sort of thing." So yeah. And, it's an interesting dynamic that kind of goes both directions. The emotional burden that it could place on family. Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't even, I, that wasn't on my radar initially. I was I was more fascinated by the possibility of, you know, what you had said in your initial uh, sharing about how folks may judge you or perceive you a certain way or, or maybe have questions about your ability to perform or to do jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, that that's a whole other facet that, Man, definitely compounds the issue. Well, I think for my family, my immediate family, you know, I've no doubt what's always operating to some degree kind of in the back of their mind is, where's this going? What will this mean? You know, and what will the implications be long-term and all that? Absolutely. I, I think it may be an invitation to live in this liminal space like I feel like like people without disabilities live in it too like we don't they I don't I'm not a person without a disability but they I don't think none of us know like how our body's gonna react when we age or whatever but I I I think that folks with disabilities maybe that's a gift to the church offering this like perspective of since we're in this holy week season while while we're recording and we coming through Lent this momentum worry that like we all of us will die and all of us will age and one in five people if we live long enough will have a disability I'm wondering if that uh, people with disabilities kind of keep that to the forefront Um, yeah any reflection on that well, I do think um, that that persons within our communities of faith who walk these journeys, that 
it is, uh, I'll just use your language, a gift to the church, or at least by the grace of God can become Mm -hmm. a gift to the church. It's not, I can guess, de facto, but gift. Exactly right. (laughs) Right, exactly. But it certainly can become that. Um, maybe it may be particularly when the church goes on the journey from seeing seeing disability that now is a part of this community of faith from a point of like um, challenge or deficit even or difficulty and walking that through all the way to being able to recognize, Oh, there is actually some tremendous gift and blessing that attaches to this. I, I I think I can give you an example. When I was a local church pastor, we back in the day we had a choir. What? What is that? Yeah, I know. I know people that stand up front. Yeah. We used to have these in the church. And uh, and we had you know a decent little choir and pretty good musicians and all that and it was, they really did some beautiful music. Well, a young lady that was part of our church that had some challenges of, of various kinds really um, decided to be part of the choir. Yeah. And one of the gifts that she didn't really not have was were, were musical gifts, <laughs> and yet she participated robustly. And uh, to the point that I had people coming to me saying, Pastor, you got to do something about this. You, this, she's just wrecking, wrecking everything. It's just, you know, I mean, it's just awful. And, uh, you know, yeah. So the pressure was on a little bit for just a second because the Lord helped me very quickly to say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, with what you're asking me, I think you're not understanding who we are. Right. And what it means for us to be the body of Christ. And what it means for us to receive Kelly's gifts as actually beautiful. Yeah. In terms of what the expression of this choir now will mean it's going to it's going to be a different kind of expression but it'll mean something new mm-hmm. and and perhaps even more more impacting in a way you know for lots of reasons not the least of which would be folk who might be newer to us and they come and experience this and they might say they could say what a terrible church this is they don't even know how to you know manage things in a way that persons like this can kind of foul up the pretty music or whatever. Or it's possible that someone might say, oh my, if if this is a church that can embrace and include like that, maybe it could embrace and include me. Yeah. I That makes me think of, and it wasn't an Ezra church, but when I first started going to church and I wanted to be in the choir, see, I do remember those. Um I was asked not to be, and the concern was, and this I learned from my the person that would be my Sunday school teacher, the concern was that they were afraid that I would fall or something that then would be a liability to the church. And in that, like, that was never said to me directly, but it took the advocacy of a Sunday school teacher who said, um, no, we're not going to do this. And so I'm wondering about the the necessity, or I don't know what the right word is there, but the for for mentors for advocates in that space that that can be an ally to those with disabilities. Well, certainly, I uh, certainly from the standpoint of trying to raise the vision of the whole, you know, and that sort of thing, but maybe especially. In situations like the one I just painted there, where suddenly because of the question or the really kind of the demand that was brought to me, all of a sudden there's a power dynamic going on. Because the truth is, I could have said, oh, yes, I'll fix this. And and I could have, I'm using air quotes, fixed yeah. it. Uh, and that would have done, you know, it probably, 
probably a lot of the people in the church would have thought, well, good for pastor. This is going to be better now. Think about the damage, you know, and not only to that young lady, but to, but to me, to others as well and what we would have missed uh in all of that so um so that's where i what i what i meant to say there i think was advocacy relative to those of us who find ourselves holding power in situations or within institutions or communities i see that hand <laughs> i was given the task of trying to create uh, an album a cover for this season that that uh, embodied something that I, both Latia cast vision-wise for me, but that I've been feeling as we've interviewed some of these guests. And this is kind of in light of what you were asking earlier, Latia, about I you know what you're going where I was going to go. go oh, okay. The gift, <laughs> the gift that the disabled bodies give to the church as a whole. I mean, wh one day I'm sitting there in an interview, and Latia drops this stat on me that says one in five folks will join our our community. I'm like, oh my goodness. And and suddenly the shift for maybe an able-bodied person from apathy to actually like, okay, I should probably care about this a little bit more than I did because out of sight, out of mind, which is sort of what we were talking about earlier, then drew me to this spot where I was thinking, okay, because I've heard Latia talk about this numerous times, how many churches say you're welcome, um, but then they just have a staircase and not a ramp, right? And that's just like a very simple physical barrier that folks that can't use stairs can't overcome to even enter into the space itself. But then it, it translates into not just the physical, practical building structures, but the metaphorical institutional structures as well. And I think there's there's something that I and I don't I'm not hundred percent sure what we're doing with this, which is part of this conversation and maybe part of what we're trying to hope to glean from folks smarter than us is uh there are so many opportunities to create those staircases instead of having, you know, the metaphorical ramps. But I don't know if maybe this is part of what, what comes from this, but I wouldn't have really cared a lot until, you know, I started having a relationship with someone like Latia who said, hey, by the way, I'm like, oh my goodness. So I'm curious, I, I guess this is both sort of an answer to Latia, but maybe another question um, to you. Dr. Rao, do you think that there's more than just this one basic, uh, you know, staircase metaphor at play for folks like Latia or other pastors? Um, maybe just, you know, we can just talk about Nazarene denomination for now. But uh, wh what do you think those staircases look like and what do we do about them? What are the metaphorical ramps? Yeah, you know, I guess my challenge with that metaphor, and I think it can work in some parts of the conversation, my challenge, I think, is that it suggests that um, we're here with the good life, and you are trying to come up the ramp to access us, because we've got the goods up here, you know. Yeah, we got to figure it out up here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's I, I recognize that could be very much overstating it in some cases. However, it, it goes back a little bit for me to that recognition that it's not just about, you know, communities of faith, like making it possible for disabled persons to become a part of it, but recognizing, again, to go back and use the language of recognize the gifts, the gift that that would mean, that that would bring to the life of the community. Um, and, and not even relative to the disability in particular, but just relative to who this image bearer of God is. Yeah, I I keep coming back to this passage um, from, from Paul about, you know, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When one part of the body is exalted, we're all exalted. And I guess that's where I get stuck with this metaphor is, are we even letting some of the parts of the body be part of what we're doing, right? It, it, are there barriers for that engagement on some level? But that's what I've been. So you kind of drew this out of me a little bit, Latia, with your question of what are we offering the church? I'm like, you're offering a whole new perspective on what I haven't been actually caring enough about to begin with. So at the very least, that that is the start of something for me. But I, I can't speak for everybody, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jaren, because you mentioned like 
your honest comment to me about the challenges that would be and then the advice that folks gave you what are the ways in which we can start to break down some of those challenges um so that i could give that i would be able if asked that same question that i asked you i would be able to say something different than what you told me that's all um all right welcome Can I put that question back on you in a in a in a in a way for a minute? I think yes, but I would still like you to answer that. <laughs> yeah. Because here's why I want you to answer that question. I have, I'm sure I have answered to that, but but you have access to structures in ways that I don't. You can challenge in ways that I can't. Yes, that's true. That yeah, that's right. Um, so my question back to you is kind of relative to that because it okay. so I'll get there, I'll go there. Okay. Um, but it was going to be, and evidently I already know the answer to this question because I'm sitting here with you now. <laughs> yes. Having this conversation, but just just broaden it out. Okay. I guess I think I think okay. that for someone like me to come along and begin to identify and talk and think and talk and, you know, relative to a disability would be offensive for somebody like you for whom the disability maybe is just much more evident or present or, you know, open, obvious in some ways or whatever, you know? I mean... I think I think that you might think, and you meaning I'm I'm speaking you as the representative of a community, but that you might think of me. What in the world are you talking about? You're doing just fine, but you're but you're right. I mean, I so just thinking about kind of where I sit in the life of the church or whatever, you know, as either a pastor of a local church, you know, or other roles now. Yeah, I, I think those of us who fill these kinds of spaces in the life of the church, we do have to do something that we're not very good at, generally speaking, and that is attend to the reality of our power mm-hmm. and what that means in the life of the church and what that especially means in terms of the kenosis, the pouring out of our lives that, that we're all called to be and to do. And so, you know, what are the ways in which I'm called again to go back to kind of what we where we started to do more than simply sort of react to situations that might come along, but to be proactive in terms of casting a vision mm-hmm. or the robust kind of uh, inclusion of the body of Christ, if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think I might answer that question to say um, that, and I know that there's a process for this to happen, right? So, but, and we start with our manual, right? That it that it both allows for folks who become disabled for whatever the reason, who need that to, to, to have the resources they need and to retire if needed. But to, to say that God does call people with disabilities into the ministry, one. So I think that's, that's one way we could do it. Uh, the, the other or one or another way could be folks like you who could walk into a space with mostly an invisible disability to say your image of someone with a disability is the issue, right? Like the reason why they didn't want you to say something is because they had an image of a person with a disability. But for you to say, I am a person with a disability um, begins to then shift this uh, distorted view of what a person with a disability is. And one way disability can show up is 
is the way it shows up for you. And it can also show up in ways that are more visible, but that doesn't uh, have, that shouldn't equate to like what you are and are not able to do um, as a minister. Um, so I think that would be my couple of things. And then to be uh, intentional about um, training around uh, those who are on ministry boards to not, and we all have biases, so it's hard, but to, to become aware of that so that when you have um, a person with a disability, just like I would say folks are, I think, increasingly more um, aware about having boards that are more diverse in terms of um you know, both male and female representation, uh, uh, culturally, in terms of race and all those things, right? That that when I walk into a room like that, I see that. It it would also be good to see that around the those tables. Agree. Yes. So that'd be huge. Just the visible kind of, yeah, piece of that. The two things you've named, I think, are really, really significant and very, very doable. So in terms of manual language, that's very doable. I think, and especially the section of the manual that deals with calling and qualifications of the minister, for there to be some specific language there that would then sort of initiate, should initiate anyway, orientation and education for boards of ministry you know, as, as they're then, um, charged with holding that section of the manual into the practice of ministry and especially the practice of credentialing to then do some education around what in the world does this mean and how do we live it out faithfully, et cetera. Yeah, those, those are good. Um, the other, because you are the seminary president thinking about, the way we train our our pastors, and um, because I've been to seminary twice now, and and nothing in the curriculum as it was, except that it was my personal like uh, dissertation thing to do, even mentions disability at all, um, even in the section that talks about multiculturalism like that is a diversity in which folks show up in the world and yet it's not mentioned at all mm. you know yeah it, it it needs to be it should be yeah and and maybe um the 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 not just the literature but the conversation within the academy is growing in that way I'm thinking especially about the work that Dr. David Wesley has been doing in recent years. Um, and he's our missiologist. And so in terms of a lot with um, intercultural studies and that sort of thing, but has been giving a lot of attention to the idea of othering. Mm -hmm. um, and I just said about as much as I really know about that as an academic discipline, mm -hmm. but I can certainly imagine that it could include the conversations that we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I want to shift the conversation a little bit um, because I wanted to be sure to, to, to ask the questions we did, but um, this question that we've asked all our guests. So I'm curious to know what your answer is. Um, this uh, magic pill question or the, the like, some person you would pray for you at the altar so if if in some world somebody created a pill or someone was able to pray for you in a way that you no longer lived with ms would you take it or would you get prayed for uh it's a hard question Um, I, th I think I want to cheat a little maybe and say, yes, both. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful for advances in medicine that are helping me clearly 
Uh, I mean, scientifically, they're helping me. It, it's mm -hmm. documented. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm also profoundly grateful uh, for the prayers of God's people and for that kind of support from my family and from my closest relationships and even beyond that. And I don't, I don't diminish either one of those in relationship to the other, you know? Um, what this experience these years has given me, I'm not sure now I'd want to be without. I think it's taught me some lessons that I might not have learned at least might not have learned as deeply without this experience. Um, it, it certainly has attuned me to a whole reality in terms of the experiences of people on a daily basis who spend a lot of time and energy and money trying to attend to their health in lots of different ways, but you know, I mean, it's just huge. Um, and it was kind of a revelation to me in a way when I started into this journey, you know, I kind of like what Josh did. I just didn't, I just wasn't connected to it. You know, just didn't even hardly see it. I mean, I kind of knew in my mind that that goes on. Um, so I, uh, I, I, no, I, I don't want, I, I don't want a different experience than what I've had. Really? You know, but on, by the same token, I'm really thankful for, uh, what science has been able to do to help me. So. So both in. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'm wondering how your because of your MS, like how your body, like how that shaped your body image and also your image of God. Has it changed at all from like, because you said you probably had it for longer than you knew, but I guess from the point that you knew, has it changed? So, uh, I don't know. It's... I suppose it's changed my own image, uh, body image in a sense, in probably overall some fairly healthy ways. Um, because I grew up and came through my teenage years and my young adult years and, you know, all the way up to, you know, so at, let's see, well, in, in, um, so if that's true, if I had it 10 years prior to diagnosis, then I would have been, uh, I would have been 40 years old. So let's just say I lived the first 40 years of my life really with the self-awareness and self-understanding of a healthy, vibrant, strong person. Um, what this is what this has given me is maybe um just a just a more profound sense that that's nothing to ever be taken for granted for one thing and it also is something to be carefully attended to as an act of worship as an act of discipleship out of a posture of gratitude so my practices, my life practices now are actually much healthier <laughs> than they were in the first 40 years, you know? Uh, and so, and that's, that's a great gift to me in many ways. My, the, the, the physical practices of exercise and, and diet and all those things that are necessary to attending to my physical condition actually provided for me before I ever really knew how deeply I would need it, provided for me a space from which to attend to my emotional and mental health 
in a period where I find myself under the kinds of pressures and stresses and anxieties I never would imagine would be part of my life. So I don't know if, do you hear me saying that this is brought in those ways, kind of a gift in that way, you know, to me? Does that, does that make any sense? You, yeah. I want, okay. Yeah. And I'm not just trying, I don't mean that. I sure do not mean that as just trying to put a bow on something that's ugly or trying to, you know, whistle in the graveyard or something like that. That's not how I mean it. I, I mean, I, I really do kind of very humbly, gratefully receive it as part of God's gracious provision in my life. No, I mean, not the disease itself, but what it has meant in how I've been shaped. Yeah. I w like I, I yes, I agree with that. I don't I don't want to name that as I guess I stand in a different space of like I don't I don't see my CP as a gift. I just see it as it is who I am in the same in the same yeah. sense. Yeah. Right. That I don't necessarily see my blackness as a gift. It just is. Um so yeah, I, I I can, I can appreciate that. And I had a question and it like flew out of my head. So we're going to keep going. Um, you know, and that's good language, what you just gave me. And I'll, I'll remember that because that's, that's a, that's the better way to think about it and say it. It's not, it's not a gift in of itself. Um, but I'm willing to name it now as a, maybe a channel or a source of God's gifts into my life in some ways that I could recognize that I might not have recognized otherwise. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I'm, I know, and you names like disability theology is not something that you've done an extensive um, study in, but I'm wondering if that shapes also how do you envision um, oh, I remember what I was saying. You got to edit this. I, I had a joke. I thought because you said um, that you wouldn't necessarily name it as a gift like your MS, but I thought about um, in a very disability theology kind of way when you look at the story of Jacob, right? And him wrestling with the angel um, and how it says that because of that wrestling, essentially he, he has a disability um for for the rest of his life and so i was like you know maybe you were wrestling with god i don't know what's going on <laughs> so but what? disability humor is a little strange and you but, did ask me about how this has impacted my view of god uh-huh yeah. you know and it and it probably has and not probably it has shaped my theology i think in some ways like that um i think in positive ways probably came up in the life of the church and my experience in the life of the church with, I would never have named it this way or even thought of it this way, but the truth of it is I was fairly formed in a, um, if you just believe it and, you know, and have faith, uh, you know, and God is able and all of that, you know, which I want to affirm in lots of ways. And yet, then it obviously begs the question. So then, what if God doesn't, or if it, you know, whatever? Then, then what do you do with all those questions? You know, right. yeah. And so I think it's given me, you know, uh, a much more, a much healthier overall kind of view of 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 what God's good creation means in the midst of the brokenness of it all, and yet. God's ongoing work to redeem and restore and bring about the full reality of God's new creation. Two questions. I'm wondering about your view of new creation and, uh, yeah, do you see yourself existing in a body that, that still has disability? Uh, well, you're going to get me way out on a, you're going to get me way out on thin ice here. <laughs> Maybe. 
because I think I th- think I think that our that our you know our our certain well I don't think I think I know our, our eschatology has been so formed in a kind of an escapist um, you know. Uh, we're going to go to this whole new world, and everything's going to be new and different and better, and you know all of that. And and yet, you know, I've come to understand uh, over time that you know God means to restore and renew God's good creation, and that the very creation itself groans in eager anticipation of its redemption in Christ Jesus, and all of that. So, what does all that mean? What are the implications of all that? It's the question, isn't it? And how does that actually get experienced and lived out? I'm really intrigued by uh, N.T. Wright's notion that time, we, we sometimes think time will cease to exist in the way we've known it, but that time is actually a part of God's good creation, and yet somehow it gets all collapsed in some ways that we can't understand in this mysterious way into some eternal now, and so, you know, I, I mean, so what if new creation has something to do with going you know, walking back through all the experiences, in a way, of the world and life, but now doing it, you know, with the complete freedom of resurrection and the restoration of all things, to be able to see restoration and redemption and healing. Uh, I, I'm what I'm trying to say there is, what if? What if healing is a part of new creation? And I don't mean an instantaneous sort of um, necessarily flip a switch and everything's different. In some ways, yes, that'd be part of it. But what if it has something to do with the work of healing? I don't know. I'm I'm saying more there than I, you know, really. Yeah. I'm not willing to fight for it. I'm just thinking. Yeah. There is a uh, some of what I read in disability theology that like there's a camp that's very like I have a disability now, which is intricately woven into who I am. So I have a disability, um, and then there's also this what you're naming this like yes, and healing is part of that um, in some way, and then. I think I land in the yes. I, I think I will have CP and whatever that looks like. But that the like the actual like physical pain and things associated with that won't exist, right? But like the way that my body is shaped, my experiences, the person that I am will will, will still be who I am. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm still thinking through it too, right? I don't know that I I'm like this is exactly how it's gonna be because nobody really knows. Yeah. Sure. Certainly, of course, of course, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm intrigued by you know what the what scriptures what scripture does witness to relative to uh, the resurrected Lord, right? And and in uh, Jesus' encounter with Thomas, right? Yeah. That that Jesus still bears the the scars and wounds of the 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 disabling event, which is like one of the main tenets of disability theology, right? That Jesus' resurrected body is disabled. Yeah. Um, so that Jesus understands or has experienced all of what it means to be human and including disability. So and then there's Jacob. And then there's others. Um wondering because you sent me a text maybe yesterday the day before about uh i guess you were somewhere and you thought about this this term that often came up in our a podcast to this stand if you're able um and i think the correction that folks are trying to make uh realizing that, that can be an able statement is to say stand in body or in spirit which i don't like either because it feels sort of gnostic to me and i don't know that that is not a concrete like I don't know what to do with that. Um, but that perhaps a way to talk about it is for some folks to stand because what we're trying to say is to give reverence to the scripture being read. So for some folks to do that, to have that posture to stand is a way to do that. And yet, uh, I don't know, but when I was in 
like K through 12 grade, we had to do the Pledge of Allegiance. And we were taught to put our hand over our hearts and say it as a way to give, I suppose, in a sense, some reverence. Um, And so can we offer that as a way to embody uh, what we're trying to say? So can we take a posture of reverence for the scripture being read either by standing, putting your hand over your heart? If you don't have a hand, right? Like maybe you're an amputee um, and in whatever way feels reverent to you, right? Give people handles. Um, I'm just wanting you to reflect back on that. So teach me, because I, I started saying this as a pastor before I ever remember hearing it from anybody. Mm-hmm. And I I think I was doing it out of a, a desire to say to persons who were unable to stand whenever I would say, please stand for the reading of scripture. And I, and I recognized, oh my, there's some people in my congregation who are unable to stand when I say that. And so my reason for saying that was I, I thought what I was doing was saying, I see you. So you teach me. Well, why why is it why do you why do you hear it as potentially problematic to say the stand that? if you're able? Because uh-huh. there are bodies that are not able. So you're discriminating in a way, right? So it's folks can hear it as almost like stand if you're white, right? So if I'm not white, I'm not gonna stand. Would it be any different to say, please stand for the reading of scripture, and I, and I recognize that there are some who are who are not able to do so, or something like that? But I think then you are then those who can't feel, um, what's the word like, uh, like pointed out maybe because then there will be people who can't or won't. So if I invite so, the congregation, so if I invite the congregation to stand, and just leave it at that, then those that's okay. I would just say how I would say it is. Uh, one, I think it's good to offer explanation anyway, because I don't think I think that there are a lot of people who don't even understand why we stand in the first place. So let's to name that. Well, yeah, right. But just saying. As a, as a way of showing a reverence for the scripture, would you take a posture, or would you take a posture of reverence as we read the scripture? That could look like yeah, sure. standing this or that or the other. Yeah. yeah, no, that's helpful, yeah. So more, more explanation, but I don't think more explanation is a bad thing. Well, I agree. Yeah. I'm wondering if, what uh I guess the last two questions I'm thinking about are and we can frame it in your current position. So if you um encountered a student who said to you, Jaron, I, I feel a call to ministry as a person with a disability, what what advice would you give? What advice would you give me if I were that person? Uh, in terms of living into going into the process of uh, of discerning a call to ministry, yeah, I I, I think what I would want to say, and and I recognize the potential um, downside of this or danger of this or something, but I think nevertheless, what I'd want to say is, don't be afraid to teach me what I need to know in order to be able to walk alongside you in this. Don't be afraid to name what I'm not naming because I don't know any better. Don't be afraid. I give you, you know, I give you invitation (laughs) to, to call me out, you know, trusting that you'll do it with love and kindness and you know that, but um, I think that's what I'd, maybe most essentially want to say is let's okay let's do this we're going to do this let's go to but let's go together and what that means is you need to learn some things from me uh, but I need to learn some things from you 
and we'll both attend to our particular places in the journey. Um, but let's do so more than anything as brothers and sisters in Christ. No. And what might you say to um I know you did it here. What might you say to credentialing boards or the faculty um who will we encounter who or who may encounter works with disabilities? Well don't assume anything. You know what they say about assuming, right? I, I, yes, I do. Okay. Uh, and it's true. I so I'd say learn. Put yourself in a posture of learning. So you know, it's. I think how those boards imagine themselves is consequential. So do they imagine themselves as gatekeepers to something? Do they imagine themselves as uh, judicatories in some way? Yeah, there are elements of that that are probably true, that are true. But is their ethos one of um, of, of mentorship, of apprenticeship, of even advocacy? Um, so I think it would just be. I think if I could, nobody's asking me for that advice these days, but if I could give advice <laughs> to boards like that, I think it would be put yourself in a posture of teachability. Yeah. Um, and I lied, I have one more question. Um, because when I was doing my research for my my um, project, my demon project, and talking to friends and others that I know with disabilities and asking them about what they wish the church knew and all these kinds of questions, uh, the response I got back more than once was, why would I want to be a part of an institution that actively lobbied against my existence, like being present in the space? And that is to say, because when the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, the church, capital C, um, lobbied to not have to implement those things, citing like, uh, financial liabilities, other liabilities of having folks with disabilities in spaces. I wonder what you might have to say there. We could ask that question around a lot of things, couldn't we? Yeah. Why would you want to be a part of an institution that will <laughs> fill in a lot of blanks there? Really? Um. <clears throat> And and my answer to that continues to be in in even the days that we're walking through, you know, uh, uh, these days, is because this is a, it 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 is an expression at its best. It's an expression of the reign of God in Christ Jesus. It it is it is as we're gathered by the Spirit and nurtured by the spirit it is the body of christ and um where else would i go i think at the i think at the end of it that's my question where else would i go i mean as as much there's a beautiful there's a beautiful bit of verse uh, by Carlo Corretto in uh, his work, The God Who Comes. And I can't quote it all, but he, he, he says things like, how baffling you are, O church, and yet how I love you. you know. And he just goes through all of these kind of back and forth realities, you know. And at the end of it, he says, how often have I wanted to slam the door of my soul in your face? And yet the truth is, I will die in the safety of your arms. And I, I think that's how I feel about, about the church, you know, is uh, in, in all of its brokenness and sin and uh, uh, humanity, you know, uh, well, however we want to name all that, um, it's still what the Spirit seems to be doing 
for the sake of the world, to bear witness to what God in Christ is doing and means to do toward the redemption of all things. Maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, relative to your question, maybe that's overstating it, over-spiritualizing it. I just don't know what else to do with it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. Uh, so I think because I'm in church, like I'm a part of this, uh, the optimistic side of me would say, because I'm a part of this body of Christ, uh, uh, God in the world, or the other side of me would say this institution. I, 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 some of me says yes, that's true. I'm thinking about those who've said, uh, like, who are not in it, like, who won't because of that. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, a big part of, of the work to which we seem to be called would would be around reconciliation wouldn't it and forgiveness and i mean you know in lots of multi-directions i don't one it's not a one-sided thing mm-hmm. which means confession uh oh. and the the ability the grace enabled ability to seek forgiveness to ask for, for to name what's wrong to name what is broken and and when it's appropriate and when there's opportunity to seek forgiveness as well as receive it. Okay, my real last question is, is there anything that you haven't said that you wish that you want to say or anything that you want to plug as folks will um, be listening to this? Well, probably what I really would say is I probably said more than I wish I would have said. I suppose in some ways. So I'm going to trust you all <laughs> to to massage this just the right way, right? So that I don't say anything dumb. <laughs> it may be too late for that. Oh, I I, I don't know, Latia. My goodness. Um, well, I mean, so you said not just something else I would say, but what would I plug? Mm-hmm. That's right. So I got to do my job here, right? Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. And just say that, you know, a, a major, a major part. So seminary education, graduate theological education, particularly the work of Nazarene Theological Seminary. Some people imagine that it's about indoctrination, about just teaching people what they need to know to go out and do the job, you know. And we, there certainly is a content. Uh, that is connected to this, and we, I think, do a nice job delivering that content. But about more than that, it's about shaping lives of prayerful discernment and wisdom and virtue. And and to that end, these are the these are the conversations, the kinds of conversations that we are committed to try and make space for and to engage with, um, not because we think we've got answers, but because uh, we think that the Spirit is actually helping us uh, to, to engage these conversations for the sake of the, in, in service to the gospel, for the sake of the world, really. That, that really is what we're trying to do. So I guess my plug would be, uh, if if you want to be part of something like that, wow, we would love to, you know. Look, Josiah, look, you can. Did you get a conference? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. Latia <laughs> and all of my friends that have gone to NTS like to remind me of how I am not a seminary graduate. So this uh, ongoing, <laughs> ongoing joke. Um, but for that reason, I might have to continue not going just so the joke stays alive, right? So it's a joke thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If the moment I go, then the joke's gone. No, then we're like, oh, you're finally learning big words. Uh, yeah, okay. I finally know all the big words. Oh, uh, see, that's the problem, right? That Because that's not, that's not what it's about. And 
unfortunately, sometimes uh, education gets carried with pride in a way that's harmful. And it's best when it's carried with humility in a way that serves the life of the church. See, look, he corrected me so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rowell. I appreciate that. Well, I just want to say thank you, Jaron, for being willing to have this conversation. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it. Thank you.